Has your routine become routine? Is there a way to restore wonder again to your routine? Let's talk about that. From the Word of God, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's Word this morning as Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, open our eyes and open our ears to the wonders in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a farmer had an ideal of what kind of land he wanted, and it wasn't, in his view, the land he owned. So he called a realtor, and he began to craft language for marketing this property. And, uh, and he put it in the paper, and when he, when he read it in the paper, when he, when he opened the paper and read his own words, he began to picture this place again. He saw what he had described, a, a hill rising to a crest with a view of the green pasture, the verdant fields beyond it, and a brook that curved through the midst, a stand of hemlocks, rich, dark soil. And he began to realize that this was the place he'd always wanted. <laughs> His own words coming back to him. What words would you use to describe your job, your family, your key roles, your routine? What words would you use? Has your life in some place lost its luster? And do you... And can you find a way to restore it again? How do we find wonder again? Well, this morning, let's consider how people who notice the ordinary have eyes that hope and ears that trust. People who notice, 
People who notice the ordinary, they cultivate eyes of hope and ears that trust. So noticing, opening eyes, opening ears. Let's go. First, people who have a sense of wonder, they notice. They notice things. They're noticers. They, they notice the ordinary. They notice, and it, that is wonder, wonder starts here. They notice that, that human life is not ordinary, that, that in the ordinary there is something that speaks that is more than mortality, that you've never met, as somebody said, you've never met a mere mortal. They notice the ordinary. In this first couple of verses, it it shows people in Jesus' hometown who are astonished by him, by his teaching, by the things that he can do, by, by his growing reputation. Why is that? I mean, they've seen what he can do, and they've, they've heard his teaching, and they're astonished because it, it, just, it just doesn't mesh up with their memories of this boy. I mean, it's kind of like, imagine, uh, imagine that you're sitting in a hospital room or a, a doctor's office, and you've gone to see a specialist, and in walks uh, a, a man, a young man in a white coat, and he's holding your chart, and he's an expert in his field, and he's come to help you, and you look up, and you realize it's the boy down the street. And you remember when he showed up at your house on Halloween wearing a whoopee cushion, right? Right? And you're going, this guy, I'm going to put my life in this guy's hands? I mean, this is what, this is kind of like what, what they were experiencing was, Here's the boy down the street, the boy next door. And, and you can hear this sort of this sneer, this slur almost. Normally, you would describe somebody like, you know, we're used to, even in our culture, you know, if you, you call somebody McDonald, right? That's, that Mac means son of Donald, right? Or you put son at the end of, uh, of any, any name, and you're, you're describing the son of, of somebody else. It's, it's how we've, we've developed surnames over generations. And, and some commentators believe that, that referring to him as, as Mary's son is sort of an implication that, that he was illegitimate, that there was some whispering around, around his birth, around his origin, that sort of disclaiming his legitimacy in, in some ways. But I, I don't think that this is why they were offended. I don't think this is why they were offended at all. I think they were offended because here was somebody who was one of them. One of them. Making claims. Doing things that were hard to describe and explain. But it was one of, one of them. It, doesn't this suggest that there is an ideal that we have for human life and that whatever the, the ordinary is, the ordinary lives that you interact with and run into, that that's not it. That whatever, the, whatever, whatever power or whatever ultimate ideal there is for human life, it, it's not the common life 
and lives that we see next door and up the road. And take offense because he's just common. One of them. They've lost the sense that we're image bearers. That you and I are created in the image and nature of God. They have lost the wonder of an ordinary human life. Rembrandt didn't, though. Rembrandt, great Renaissance painter. Rembrandt uh, painted ordinary people, ordinary lives. And author Frederick Buechner describes one such painting of a Dutch woman. He says she wore a black dress. He's describing this, this painting of Rembrandt, famous painting. She wore a black dress and a a tight-fitting white cap and a starched rough collar and had sort of waxy pale skin wrinkled, her upper teeth gone, her lips sunken in, her hands folded, looking out from that frame. In no sense, a remarkable face, Beekner says. If you saw that face sitting across the aisle from you on an airplane, Or if you saw it coming down, pushing a cart full of groceries, you'd never notice it at all. Not a remarkable face. Not a remarkable face. But a face that has been so remarkably seen by Rembrandt that we're jolted into seeing it remarkably. Did you hear that? People creating the image and nature of God. Ordinary lives, common lives. Seeing them anew. In some ways, he says, all faces are represented in that ordinary face. You've never met a mere mortal. And so the first call here is to notice. Not to be so astonished but to notice the power in the ordinary. But see, here's what happens then. People who notice the ordinary, that, that they, they respect it, they see the dignity of the daily, they, they, they recognize something uncommon in a common face. People who notice, they develop eyes that can hope. They develop hopeful eyes. Eyes that that can see hope in the here and now. In the here and now. They say, verse 3, they say, isn't this the carpenter, right? Back to that, you know, idea that this is just the boy up the street. But, but the carpenter, they're referring to, to, to the fact that he's just, again, one of them, but in a village that was just a forgotten village, maybe 400 Maybe 500 people in this village of Nazareth. John 146 says this. There's this question that, that, that some of the, as Jesus' reputation is growing, that, that some of the Pharisees have this question is this. The question is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the same disdain that they have for their own village and for their own lives. Do you see this? Do you see the disconnect that, that, 
that they have between their lives and their expectations and their ideals. And part of their astonishment is simply that they have lost a sense of the remarkable in themselves and in their place. They've sort of been institutionalized into something smaller than life really does suggest. It it reminds me of that, that, uh, I I think that movie, Shawshank Redemption, that played every day for about a decade, you know. Anytime you went anywhere, it was playing, right? But but Brooks, you know, in that movie, it's said that Brooks, as he left prison, was released from prison, that he had become an institutional man, that he was institutionalized, that he couldn't function out in the world, that, that he was dependent, that his whole world had, had sort of become that, just, just that, that framework, that imminent frame of prison. This is how philosopher Charles Taylor describes modern-day worldviews, that they are framed only in the imminent, only in the here and now, with no luster, no sparkle, no wonder, This is the reason why I think, well, but by the way, I, I, I've seen this myself, not just in, in, in movies, but I've seen this. I, when, when I was in college, I took this, um, this class on poverty, and one of the things that we did was tour around Greenville, South Carolina, where I lived, and, and uh, there were 50 mill villages all the way around Greenville, and every one of them had similar marks. You could, you could go in there and... and and Bart Dredge, who was the professor, would say, look, look, look for these marks and you'll know that you're in a mill village. And one of the marks was that, that all of the mailboxes were oriented to the, the, the smaller village itself, never to any main thoroughfare, never outward, always inward. And the idea was that you are, you're orienting people to something smaller, something imminent, some, you, you're, you're you're removing from people a larger vision of life. This is why I think, this is why I think that there was one of these heresies that, that arose in the early centuries called docetism. And, and docetism is just based on this word dokine, which means to seem, but not to be, to seem. And, and the, the idea here was that Jesus wasn't really a man, but the claim was that, that he was just God appearing, only seeming to be a man. There's this disconnect between the, the, the idea that, that, uh, that, that, that God would come in flesh and blood. That there's something powerful among us and behind these faces and in these faces created and reflecting the image and nature of God. And so there was a group that, that just couldn't accept that God would become one of us. There was this limited frame, this this narrow vision of life. Van Gogh, another painter, he saw this narrow view, these downcast eyes, these people looking at their feet. And he, he tried to paint in a way that lifted people's eyes that gave them eyes of hope. His most famous painting, you've all seen it, The Starry Night, is one of the most loved in the world. You know, when he was painting it, when, 
when he died, he, he didn't think much of it. And now it's one of the most famous paintings in the world. His attempt to help lift people's eyes. He was acting kind of like a, like a, a spiritual optometrist with a, a foropter. Have you seen that, you know, that foropter when you're getting your eyes checked and they kind of put these different lenses? Is that better or worse, better or worse? I, I can never tell, you know. It's like, think, think, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about it too much. I have no idea. But he's like, he's taking these stars and he's putting these different lenses on these stars. And he's, maybe you've seen even this like little whirly thing where you, you, see, you see Starry Night, that, that painting, and then right above it, this, this sort of spinning image. And if you stare at that spinning image for 30 seconds, and then you look at the painting, that the stars start to, to move and everything starts to move. He was going for that. I think he'd love that. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I think, I think, I think he would love that, that effect because that's what he was going for to help people see with eyes of hope in the here and now that wonders abound and wonders never cease. And people who notice the ordinary, they cultivate eyes of hope. They cultivate it. And people who notice the ordinary also cultivate ears that can trust that there's more to life than meets the eye. There's more to life than meets the eye. Ears that are open, that can hear the voice of their good shepherd. Ears that can listen to the echoing eternity in human life, in this broken world. Ears open, recognizing that there's more to life than meets the eye. Jesus, in verse 6, he marvels. They, they are astonished. Now Jesus, it's Jesus' turn to be astonished. And what is he, what makes him so astonished? He's astonished at their unbelief. Unbelief. Lack of faith. No faith. Now, he's not talking about people who doubt. You know, to doubt is kind of waver, right? It's not like, eh, I'm not sure, it's some uncertainty. Faith is not to... Is not to have no doubts. I mean, sometimes doubts can be the ants. And again, Beekner would say this: doubts can be the ants in the pants of your faith. Right? <laughs> they kind of get you going. Right? This isn't about doubt. This is about unbelief. You see, sometimes people are looking for a miracle because they just want God to invest. Yeah, they want something supernatural. They want something, they want some fireworks. But they really are oriented to the now. It, it says that Jesus couldn't do any mighty works there. Uh, Matthew, the parallel pa- passage, it just says he didn't. He didn't. It didn't say he couldn't. And so sometimes people interpret this as though, you know, like, like this is somehow, like their unbelief is some kind of kryptonite to his powers. Not so. Not so. Their unbelief is not kryptonite. In fact, there are places where Jesus performs miracles even though people have no faith or have little faith. O ye of little faith, where does that come from? And what happens after that? Well, that comes from when the storm, they're on the boat and there's a storm and, and he says, O ye of little faith, and then he calms the storm. So it's not kryptonite. It, it, lack of, of, of faith is not kryptonite. He couldn't perform because he wouldn't perform because he didn't want to reinforce the idea that 
God is a genie in the bottle that you just have to rub that bottle just right and you can get the miracle that you want so that you can continue to live the life that you want. He didn't come for that. His ministry is not about a life oriented on, on self. It's not even about a life that is, is just so, sort of becoming increasingly moral or virtuous. Christianity, Christ didn't come to, to establish heroic virtues. He came to remove self-centeredness and establish love. That's his mission. So he couldn't because he wouldn't. The more powerful effect of Christ on human life is a change of heart, a permanent one, an eternal one, not just fireworks for an imminent frame, but embers into flame, embers of hope and faith and love. For people who are made for eternity. That was his charge. It makes me think of this, uh, this story I told right after I got here, so hopefully you don't remember this story, but uh, one of my favorite stories about this, this kind of point where people are just oriented to the now. And it's, a, it's just a goofy little story about a group of scientists that said, uh, and these were disbelieving scientists, but they, they wanted an audience with God. And he, so he sent one of his angels down to, to meet with them and and they said, listen, we want, we, want you all to, we want you to take a message back to God that we're, we, we've got it from here. We'll take it from here. We don't need him anymore. We, we actually have figured out how to create life just on our own. And uh, we, we've got it. We'll manage everything from here on out. And just, just tell God to just keep his distance. And the angel says, oh, well, tell me about it. I'd like to see uh, you make, one of, make a person. Um, let's see. How do you do it? And uh, one of the spokesmen, he bends down. He says, well, you, you take some dirt and you, and, and he says, ah, 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 wait, get your own dirt. I just wonder if you've lost a sense of the wonder that there's something rather than nothing. There's something rather than nothing. Malcolm Bagai is a, a great poet, one of the great poets of our day. And he writes, Heaven in the Ordinary. I want you to listen closely. Now that you've, now that, that you've spent time in this passage, you've recognized Jesus is back to his, his people. He's not getting any love there. He's, he's, he's recognizing that people are just, uh, are not oriented to hope or faith or love. And now that you've recognized, hey, what he's calling people to is to, is to see that, 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 that we're creating the image and nature of God. And that he's, his mission is to change the human heart, not to just wow them in the moment. And so in some ways, what Jesus is doing is showing how powerfully strong he is in the weakest moment of human history. And, and here is Malcolm Geith poetically speaking to that, that whole idea. He says this, Because high heaven made itself so low, 
because high heaven made itself so low that I might glimpse it through a stable door or hear it bless me through a hammer blow and call me through the voices of the poor, unbidden now, its hidden light breaks through the door amid the clutter of the everyday illuminating things I thought I knew whose dark glass brightens even as I pray. Then this world's walls no longer stay my eyes. A veil is lifted likewise from my heart. The moment holds me in its strange surprise. The gates of paradise are drawn apart. I see his tree with blossom on its bough. And nothing can be ordinary now. Let me ask you. This week, what do you need to notice again? What words would you use to describe your life routine, your roles, your family, your job? What words would you use to convey a sense of wonder about your responsibilities. That's number one. And number two, whose eyes are on your life of wonder? Whose eyes are on your life that need to see somebody who can wonder beyond the imminent frame, who can have a sense that there's more to life than meets the eye? What words would you use? Whose eyes are on you? You see, it's, it's an ordinary thing. It's an ordinary thing to love and notice the beautiful. But it's a beautiful thing to notice and love the ordinary. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that not only do the heavens proclaim, but that we, our lives, can proclaim more wonderfully, more beautifully the hope that we have. Lord, when Peter commanded us, when Peter told us always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, I don't think he was just talking about some kind of argument for God. I, I think... He may very well have been talking about lives that can speak of the good and the beautiful. May we live with eyes of hope and ears that can hear that there's more to life than meets the eye. May we find the beautiful in the ordinary and may people regard our gaze in such a way that they would be curious to know what we're looking at. In Jesus' name, amen.